Lord, help us as we hear your word this morning to receive it with meekness, to see you, Lord Jesus, as the perfect manifestation of it, and to not just be hearers, but doers of the word. Lord, let it change our lives so that we are different people who reflect the image of our good Father. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the one of the knocks on James is that it feels very works heavy. And in fact, there have been um, there have been some people who have even said that James contradicts much of, of Paul's writings. And I just have to tell you that that even a pretty surface level reading of it shows that it's, it's not the case. We have to remember the context that they are writing into. And so remember, especially in light of how we took communion this morning and the songs that we were singing, that James is writing primarily to Jewish Christians who are now trying to figure out, like, well, what do we do with all of the law? Like, what do we do in all the ways that we've tried to obey God and love God and honor God? And so what James is doing is reminding them that we are still called to obedience, but it's a different, it's with a different posture. That in the past, it was, it was obedience trying to prove themselves worthy to God, but in Christ, we are already declared righteous. And so sometimes we say um, these things that commandments in the Bible are not a bar that we are supposed to achieve, right? They're not a, they're not a hurdle that we're supposed to climb over but they are promises right, that, are, that are assured. They are promises of what God is actually doing in us. So when he says things, like when we hear things about like, well, if you follow Jesus, well then act in this way, that that action is not meant to say, okay, so if you love Jesus, prove it by doing these things. They're saying, if you love Jesus and if you are loved by him and if you belong to him, this is who you are becoming. They are promises of who you are becoming, not a a bar or a test that you are supposed to achieve. So when he talks about endurance and perseverance, saying that has already been done for you, Jesus has already endured and given that to you, and now you get to have experienced the joy of becoming one who endures through all trials and perseveres. That's important to keep that in mind this morning, lest we take these snippets from James and make them into um, measurable um, legalistic type structures where we just check these boxes and say, okay, I did this, I did this, I did this, so now I'm good. James is talking about something much greater than that. And last week we mentioned how James, um, is it full of memorable verses, like proverb-like statements with, with some context. And today we have three of those statements that are all connected. This is all about kingdom-mindedness and how we interact with God and with others. And James is saying, if you belong to the kingdom, then you are going to look different. And he says it in three different statements that then we'll see how they all connect together. James 1.19 Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
So that verse, remember we talked about, you can outline, put it in a box or whatever, but these memorable verses, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This verse is well known in my house, and I think it is incredibly important in the world today. See, we live in a world where it's the opposite of this, right? We don't listen well. Have you ever tried to explain your case to somebody who believes the opposite of you on, a situ- on some kind of circumstance, some kind of issue, and you try to explain what you, what you mean by that and feel like, man, they're not, they're not even listening to what I'm actually saying. We, we reduce everyone to little topic statements and beliefs that we think, so that, that we structure for them, and we think we know why everyone believes and thinks everything that they do. We know everything that somebody is going to say before they even say it. I can look at an article, a news article that gets posted online, and I already can predict the comments. We don't actually read articles. We only read headlines. Have you ever shared an article that you only read the headline of? Yeah, liars. Okay. You know, you totally do that. You're like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And you don't even, like, the whole thing could be, like, lorem ipsum dolum, whatever, like, and you don't even know because you didn't read it. We just read headlines. We don't listen. We don't take time to understand. We turn each other into caricatures of beliefs, oversimplifying, creating straw men that we get to destroy. We interpret things intentionally sometimes, and not only do we not avoid or not be slow to anger. Get that back up there. We're not done with that. Not only are we not slow to anger, we actually interpret people in a way so that we can become angry. Like we hear what they say and we twist it a little bit so that we can be angry because to be angry means like I'm, I'm indignant and I'm righteous. And James is saying, no, no, brothers. Anger does not produce the righteousness of God. See, God's anger is righteous. Ours rarely is. And even in situations where anger is the righteous response, it is so mixed with our own indignation and self-righteousness and thirst for vengeance, that it's hard to even parse that out. See, plenty of situations today give us practice for this, to put this in to, to practice, to obey God's word, to be quick to listen. Every Facebook feed, every news station, every article that's passed around, There's no one in here who doesn't have situations where you find yourself getting frustrated with people that you see as naive or uninformed or misled or just flat out wrong. But what is our response? And it's hard in our culture because our culture values fast wit and quick retorts. We're drawn to people who agree with us who humiliate the other side. We're drawn to them. And we give influence to them. I mean, have you ever seen a video with a title like Christian Apologist Destroys Atheist with one comment? I've watched those. And let me tell you, each time I think, not only did you not destroy this atheist, I don't even think it was a very good argument. I can't tell you how many times I listen to that and I'm thinking, I'm a Christian and I think you just made me less Christian. Like this isn't convincing. 
But that just shows our mindset. If somebody just agrees with us, we're like, yeah, they're right. They're speaking truth. Even if their argument is terrible, even if they look nothing like Jesus, sound nothing like Jesus. And we need to watch that. And when I see something like this, here's the twisted way. I see that and I get so frustrated and I think like, that is not what Christianity is about. You are not representing Christianity and I find myself wanting to find somebody else to destroy them with their words. See, we can be really judgmental about judgmental people. We can be really angry about angry people. And I find in my own heart a hypocrisy that I don't want to look at. And none of this produces the righteousness of God. For the righteousness of God, we look to Jesus. He is the righteousness of God. And Jesus is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Think about that. Sometimes we point this out, but no one in the history of the world better understood how everything worked. And yet, he always enters into conversations with questions and listening. Always. In fact, there are many times where the disciples are looking at him going like, hey, you gonna speak up here? You gonna show people who's boss? And he just waits. He's patient. And people tried to bait him into all kinds of debates. People tried to get him caught up in all kinds of controversies of the day. How to obey the Sabbath. What should we do about taxes? What's the role of the government or the military? Interpretations of other forms of the law. And he always is asking questions and listening to what the underlying issue is. Because for Jesus, it was hardly ever about the thing they were asking about. It was about the heart issue that was going on underneath. And he would ask questions. And he would listen. Who do you say that I am? What is it that you want? What do you think? He listens to the woman at the well, even though he already knows why she is there. Because underlying all of her defenses is her fear that she cannot worship God. He listens to Mary and Martha as they blame him for their brother's death, even though he knows he will raise Lazarus from the dead and defeat their underlying fear and grief of, around death. Just read through the Gospels and marvel at how consistently Jesus is quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And then be reminded that he does the same thing with you and with me. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. James isn't just saying, hey, be a good person. Good people listen to other people. That's just a, that's just a good moral thing to do. He's saying, when you are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, you are like your father. Who, when he looked at you, listens and is slow to speak and slow to become angry. And so he says, therefore, 
Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's when you realize that this is what God has done in me and now he wants to do that through me. Then put away all of that self-righteous indignation, all that rush to judgment, all that mischaracterizations of other people. Put it all away. It's wicked and filthy. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Take on the life of the word of God, Jesus Christ, through the word that is spoken to us through scripture. Repent of your quick responses of of indignation and anger and mockery and look to Jesus. And it will bring life and produce compassion and often grief instead of anger. And when you do that, it will also turn into opportunity to share the gospel. I hear from so many people a desire to share the gospel with people that they know and they love and they care about. And they wonder when they're going to get that opportunity. Those opportunities are all over the place. You want to have an opportunity to share the gospel? Listen. Listen. Sharing the gospel is not about having all the right answers or the right arguments. It is about knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, being so fluent in it and understanding it and loving it and and living it and being so in tune with it, and then hearing and understanding someone else's story and seeing how they intersect. That's sharing the gospel. That's what Jesus does every time he announces the kingdom. Is He listens to people and hears what are they really searching for? What are they really afraid of? And then he shows how the kingdom fulfills that desire or releases them from that fear. When I teach at seminary about evangelism, like that's all I say. And the students sit there and they think, that's what we paid for? And I say, yep. Know the gospel, listen to other people, and see how they intersect. That's why Jesus, when he's proclaiming the kingdom, people have always been marveled at the fact that Jesus doesn't seem to have one strategy in declaring the gospel or proclaiming the kingdom of God. He uses all kinds of different analogies, all kinds of different phrases. And it's because he's always talking to someone different. That doesn't mean that the kingdom changes with people. It doesn't mean that the kingdom is one thing for one person and another thing for another person. The kingdom is what the kingdom is. The gospel is what the gospel is. It is the good news that God loved us and that we rebelled against him. He created us. We rebelled against him. He redeems us and rescues us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And through his resurrection, we are renewed and made new creations to walk in that newness of life. And that one day he makes all things right and we will be with him for eternity. That is the gospel. But how people arrive to seeing that is different. For one, Jesus makes them catch a lot of fish because they worry that they're not going to be provided for. For another, he tells them they saw him sitting by a tree because he wondered if God was really there. He communicates where people are because he listens to them and he understands what they are afraid of and what they desire and he knows how he satisfies all of those things. Do you? 
See, as you listen to people, you listen to the Holy Spirit and look to understand the root of their problem. This is what I do when I'm sharing with someone or counseling or anything. I am praying at the same time and saying, God, help me. I am one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. Help me, help me meet them where they are. And the reality is the root issues that people are struggling with are pretty much the same. And if you listen, you will hear themes of loneliness and purpose and self-worth and identity and worry. And we spend so much time worrying about what the answers to specific detailed questions are and we miss the big picture underneath. Let me ask, what does it matter if someone's identity issue manifests itself in gender confusion or in a stay-at-home mom who feels like she's lost herself in raising her kids. Like sharing is not about fixing their situation or telling them what's right and wrong. It comes from pointing them to the giver of their identity, to know that they were created for a purpose, to know and love God and to share in his glory. That where they are and who they are is not an accident, is not a mistake, and there is one who knows them. That's what matters. What does it matter if someone happens to be worried about climate change or gun control or social security? What matters is that you can point them to the God who provides and is control of all things and he has numbered the hairs on their head. But by the way, side note, this requires you to be more concerned about that person knowing Jesus than about what their view on climate change is. Right? This requires you to believe that your hope is in Jesus, not in the next election or in what happens in the culture. See, they see that in us. We can say one thing, but our hope comes out of us. And if our hope is in Jesus and we say, listen, I, I'm not worried about those things. What I'm, what I'm concerned about is what, I, what I'm sensing in you is that you have a desire for purpose and meaning in your life. And let me just tell you that there's a God who created you and he has purpose and meaning for you. And one that is not just temporary, that goes away when you and I are long gone on this earth, but one that carries forward for eternity. That is good news. So hope in Jesus and love your neighbor. Slow down and listen and receive with meekness the implanted word of God and watch what doors God opens. But then James says, don't just listen to the word. Don't just receive it with meekness, but be doers of the word. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So I'm going to sound this alarm any time that I can. But in the history of the Christian church, so thousands of years of the Christian church, and in the current global church landscape, our reputation, the American church's reputation, is that we have, there's been no point in church history where we have had access to more resources, more translations of the Bible, more access to God's word, more access to teachings about God's word. And our reputation is we have access to all of these things, and we are really good at hearing and understanding and regurgitating 
but our reputation is that we're not so great in obedience. Our reputation is that we're very fixated on things of the world. We love to think about things, talk about things, consider things, tell others how they should obey these things. We even like feeling, like sometimes we even like the feeling of being convicted and feel like that because that makes us feel like we're alive and that we're doing something about it. If we just feel that conviction, then we're like, okay, yeah, look, I'm growing spiritually. But discipleship is about transformation demonstrated through obedience. Francis Chan, who I love as an author and speaker, he has one of the best illustrations. It's been around for years. You can still find it on YouTube where he gives an illustration on discipleship and on the American church's view of discipleship. And he says, it's like if I told my daughter, Rachel, to, to go clean her room. I said, Rachel, go, I want you to go clean your room. And then if an hour later or two hours later, I, I ask her, hey, did you clean your room? And, and, and she comes back to me and she says, you know, I, I thought about what you said. I really did. I gave it some really good thought. In fact, I memorized it. You said, Rach, go clean your room. I even learned it in Greek. And in fact, in about an hour, all my friends are going to come over and we're going to sit around and we're going to talk for an hour about what it would look like if we all cleaned our rooms. And you realize that's not discipleship. Discipleship is hearing the word and then doing what Jesus commands in faith. It's not. We don't get brownie points for just sitting around and discussing theoretically, like, what would it look like if we cared for the poor? What would it look like if we um, blessed those who persecuted us? Like, what would it look like if we, we, that's not, we don't get any points for that. There's no blessing in that. James is saying the blessing is when you then go and do it. Because that's real faith. James says if you don't put these things into practice, he has this weird illustration of you're like a man who stares, stares at himself in the mirror and then walks away and instantly forgets what he looked like. And I always thought that was kind of a weird illustration and sometimes it would be like confusing, but I, just, I picture it this way. It's like looking in the mirror, hearing the words, like looking in the mirror and you see it, you see the reflection, it's held up to us and you see some things and it's like seeing a bunch of like broccoli stuck in your teeth. Like, quick poll, if you have something in your teeth, do you want somebody, the person you're with, to tell you? Okay. Secondary poll, do you get angry at them if they didn't notice? Yes. Yes, okay. Let's just... We're just working out some marital issues right here in the pulpit. No big deal. No big deal. You know, notice I didn't say you saw it and you chose not to say anything. You just didn't notice, but, you know, whatever. That's not... James's point is not that. James's point is that you look in the mirror and you see it, and if you ever heard a sermon or read scripture and you felt convicted and you said, oh, that's, that's me. I, that is ugly, and you see the sin in your heart and you see it, and then James says, you're like a, then a man that walks away and forgets. You walk away and you feel that conviction on a Sunday morning, and then you walk away, and by the time you hit the parking lot, you've kind of even forgotten most of what you thought about And all of a sudden, the thing that felt so urgent in that moment of, oh, this needs to change in my life. I need to obey Jesus in this way. I know exactly who I need to reach out to and forgive. And by the time you hit the parking lot, you think, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. 
Maybe, maybe if that comes up this week. We've all been there. But James says, what good does that do? And he's just recounting what Jesus said when he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And I'm just telling you, sometimes we just want to be mindful of this, of not using our access to all of these resources as a cover-up for our lack of obedience. We've got to be careful in our culture when we have access to so many great resources that we don't become people who are really good at hearing the word and, and communicating, telling it to other people, but not actually doing anything about it. This is what I was concerned about years ago. It was in one of my first sermons that people who were here at that point still don't let me live it down, where I said, stop signing up for Bible studies. Sounds like a good thing for a pastor to say when he's new. Don't know why that went wrong, but here's the thing. People misunderstood and said that I was saying, don't study the Bible. That's not what I was saying. What I meant was signing up for Bible studies and doing a lot of Bible studies is not the mark of spiritual maturity. Obedience to Christ and faith is the mark of spiritual maturity. And so we distract ourselves. We're like, got to find a new Bible study. Got to find the next thing. Got to find the next thing. And what we're doing is just if I keep filling my head, then I never have to pay attention to the fact that it's not playing out in my life. And so by all means, get together and study the word. 100% study the Bible and then encourage one another to obey it, to be doers of the word. Don't drown out things. When you stop, like if you're reading in the morning, I would encourage you, like it's great to read. I read big volumes of scripture sometimes and big chunks and that's beautiful, but you also need to listen to the Holy Spirit. And maybe your plan for that morning was I'm gonna get through three chapters of Romans and maybe in one verse you are hit and cut to the core. And I would just encourage you, stop. Slow down and receive with meekness the implanted word and work on that and say, Lord, help me live this out. One way you can do that, just by the way, here in, in, when it comes to sermons or reading a book or whatever, is um, practice the, the discipline of journaling, which a lot of people do, but don't just journal your thoughts, journal actions. Here's what I notice about my sermon notes when I'm listening to somebody else preach. They're almost all about thoughts. Oh, hey, I think this, or I wonder this. And when I started digging into that and thinking, why are all my notes about thoughts about this thing, this concept? I had to confess it's because it's easier. It's easier to talk theoretically about the power of prayer. It's much harder to connect when Peter says, hey, the reason your prayers are hindered, husband, is because you're not loving your wife. I'm thinking, ah, oh, that's harder. Writing down actions, journaling things that I see in my life that are not consistent with what I believe that's harder. That feels more vulnerable. That feels more tangible. And so I'd encourage you to do that. Journal actions. It's scary because it requires a response. But ask the question, does my life look like this thing that I declare? Is, and what about my life does or doesn't look like that? Where in my life am I actually showing something in my life that is different than what I say about who God is? And let that transform you. 
trust Jesus in that because he's already done this for you. He's already given you his righteousness. It is not a bar. He's not shaming you with it. He's saying, this is who you can be. This is who, why I saved you, is to redeem you, to make you new, and to make you into the person that you were created to be. So walk in that. And then James says, finally, this is what it looks like. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This verse gets everybody up in arms. I grew up in a church that didn't believe the Bible was the inspired word of God and didn't believe that Jesus was the only way to salvation. But they cared for widows and orphans. And so they would quote this verse and say, like, this is, this is what God really wants. And it's one of the reasons why people get uncomfortable about James. Like, there's nothing about the life, death, and resurrection in this verse. And this is what he's saying is religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. What do we do with that? Well, one, we've got to realize this is not an exhaustive list. This is not a checklist. He's not saying, make sure you take care. Listen, who cares what you believe? Who cares about your theology? Who cares about any of that stuff? Just make sure you take care of widows and orphans. What about lepers? No, 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 just widows and orphans. Like, that's not the point, obviously. He's not saying only take care of widows and orphans, that this is the only thing that matters. What he's saying is the outflowing of a religion that is pure and of God is going to look like this, and he gives an example visiting widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He's giving you a little litmus test. So if you think that you're nailing this whole Christianity thing, but you find yourself speaking harshly towards others and justifying it because of their beliefs, or you're judgmental toward others and justifying it because you don't sin in the particular way that they do, or you find yourself drawn to people because of what they can give to you and valuing them based on who you think deserves to be valued, then you're deceiving yourself and your religion is worthless. This is what pure religion looks like. Visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. Why? Who do they represent? They represent those that the world sees as having no value. The ones with no power. The least of these. This is not mere feel-good compassion and humanitarianism. It's actually a demonstration of the gospel. Luke 14. Jesus he said also to the man, who had invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Why does James point this out? 
Why does Jesus care so much about caring for the least of these and for inviting people who can't invite you back? Because God's love is demonstrated most powerfully by loving those who cannot pay you back because that's what his love for us is like. We declare something really powerful about our God when we love people, when someone says, like, why do you waste your time there? Why do you spend so much time with that person? Why do you continue to love that person even though, and we say, because that's how God loved me. That's who God is. We have nothing to offer outside of what God has given us. Anything we have to offer the kingdom came from him. Right? When Paul says to to the Corinth, to church at Corinth. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Anybody else have a situation as a kid like I did where I bought Christmas presents for my parents choosing from a list that they gave me with money they gave me? <laughs> Merry Christmas! Like, imagine me boasting about how awesome the gift I gave them was. Like, imagine any of that. It's, it's ridiculous. I contributed nothing that I didn't first receive. Listen, whatever gifts you've been given, whatever way that you have of serving, you don't have anything to give that you didn't first receive. And so we care for widows and orphans not out of pity or superiority like the world does. We care for widows and orphans because we believe what Jesus says about the kingdom, that they are our brothers and sisters. And more than that, they are saints made in his image. And there will come a day where they will be royalty in the kingdom because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. We are one beggar telling another where to find bread, regardless of our socioeconomic status or whatever gifts of intelligence the Lord may have given us or work skills or physical abilities or whatever the case is. It doesn't matter because we all reflect the image of God. I love this when Jesus talks about these things. He said to them, truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit, inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Do you see what's going on here? The kingdom flips upside down and the person who sees with kingdom eyes and has been transformed and says, I belong to the kingdom. Now, don't regard anyone according to the flesh, as Paul says to the church in Corinth. He doesn't regard anything. We are now new creations and we see with new eyes. And do you see what happens when we start looking around and we see the kingdom of God? In the kingdom of God, there are no widows because we are all the bride of Christ. In the kingdom of God, there are no orphans, for we are all adopted sons and daughters of our God and King, and if children, then heirs. That's why. That's why. That's why we have people who go to the nursing homes and to Rennes and other places and sit and eat with people who maybe don't even remember um, like what, why they're there. Or they get confused about all things and so patiently sit and love because they are royalty in the kingdom. They're not less. 
Like I've said before, like it is, I, what is great in the kingdom is faith. And a kingdom-minded person does not see people as the world does based on what they can offer us in the moment. We see them as God sees them, as image bearers, and in Christ, new creations, and royalty. Adopted. Given as brides. I love this interaction from Jesus. He says, Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head, and he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? They're quick to speak, slow to understand and listen, and quick to speak, and they're indignant. Why the waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor, right? Because they understood everything. They didn't need to hear anything. They didn't need to listen They didn't need to watch. They didn't need to respond to Jesus. They already knew this is a waste. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Listen, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This woman is cared for and loved by Jesus not because he has just pity in the sense of, oh, I feel sorry for her. She has nothing to offer. He's saying her act of faith has made her famous. Imagine being in a situation where somebody says, hey, do you know who this is? When you see with kingdom eyes, you see great faith is the most valuable thing in the world. And he's saying, wherever the gospel is declared, she will be spoken of. The other people in that house, nobody remembers them. We don't even know who they are. But this woman, there will become a day in the kingdom where you might run into a woman and somebody says, do you know who this is? This is the woman who broke the, oint- the perfume and poured it in the ointment and, and put it on Jesus and anointed him for burial. And will be like, it's you, and we'll be amazed because that is an act of faith and she'll be famous in that light. And when we look with kingdom eyes, we will not see the world the way the world sees it. We won't care about some Hollywood movie star or some celebrity pastor or some NFL quarterback or anything like that. We'll see people who exhibit faith and we'll say, yeah, you're the one I want to be near. You're the one I want to be around. I have said this so many times and I want you to believe me that every week I look around and I see people that just floor me with their faith. The people who, for whom just worshiping God and just coming into a worship service is a huge act of faith. The person struggling with mental illness, worshiping God through all the other voices telling them something else, that person is a hero in the kingdom of God. The person who is attracted to the same sex and is pursuing Jesus and trusting that he is better. The person is royalty in the kingdom of God. And those who view with kingdom eyes see it. It's a treasure hidden in a field and worthy of leaving everything for. They are single-minded, not being led astray by the world. And that's what James means when he says unstained by the world. 
It's not some form of morality of avoiding these certain things. He's saying to be single-minded and focused on the kingdom, unstained, not pulled away, not sucked into the world's controversies and irreverent silly myths and battles about this thing or that thing, not being sucked in with any of those things, but saying, no, I see the kingdom. I seek the kingdom first. I am all in with the kingdom, and so I see with kingdom eyes. So what James is ultimately saying is that the person who is controlled by the Spirit, who belongs to the kingdom, who is following Jesus, that person is quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's a person who doesn't just hear the word, but does it in faith. It's a person who, rather than taking moral stands and broadcasting that, they live out their faith. And it's demonstrated that they see things in the kingdom because they value the least of these. They value the ones that the world doesn't value. And in doing all those things, they reflect the image of their father and they say, that's my God. That's my king. It's why we value things like what other people would tab as social justice. I just, you gotta know I don't care. I don't wanna let the world define what we care about and what we don't care about. We believe that we live as kingdom people, that Jesus Christ is our king and he cares for the widows and for the orphans and for the outcast and for the sick. And so I want you to know that if that's you, you have a home here. And I want you to know that we care about those things. It's why we do CASA, which is court-appointed special advocates. Why we have people in our church who meet with kids who are, and are advocates for kids who find themselves kind of wrapped up in family court. And they patiently meet with them and go into sometimes difficult circumstances to just be with them and to be the presence of Christ. It's why we have a welcomed, which is our ministry that surrounds foster families, which by the way, we are needing more families to be a part of welcomed. And that's just you joining a team to support a family who says, I'm going to take in a foster child. Have you seen the signs everywhere for foster families needed? You see them everywhere, right? If you haven't, start looking. You'll see them. We have a desperate need of that. I mean, just wonder, like, what would it look like for the church? And so many families who are jumping into that, who have adopted and have taken in foster children, who have supported families. If you want to be a part of that, by the way, just put that on the communication card. We have people who go into the nursing homes and visit people you guys remember Esther Shire? Remember Esther? She's singing our worship team. I was just talking to her a couple weeks ago. She moved out to California. She'd be super embarrassed for me, but she's not here. She's in California, so she doesn't know I'm sharing this. Do you know what she does? She used to sing on our worship team, incredible voice, just incredible faith. One of her jobs right now, she goes into nursing homes to people with memory issues, Alzheimer's and dementia, and she sings hymns to them for hours. That's the kingdom. Not a single one of those people are going to write some letter to her thanking her for all the work that she has done. There are no cameras there, no church that's like sponsoring that program. She goes in and she sings people who cannot pay her back for the glory of God. If you want to do things like that, would you do me a favor and put that on the communication card? Whether it's widows, there are people who desperately need to be visited. 
We have orphans who need to be cared for. If you want to be a part of that, you can just put anything on that card and we will, we will find out. You don't need to know exactly what you're asking about or anything. Like people say like, well, what exactly should I put in something? Orphans, widows, anything. And we will reach out to you and we will help you get connected and figure out how could you help. We're already doing that in so many ways and it's beautiful as a church because it glorifies our Father. Those were all tangents, which is why the sermon went longer than I expected, so I'm sorry. But here's the bottom line. James is not giving us a list, a checklist of things to do. He's saying, this is who you're becoming. And that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and to empower you to live it. So take on the righteousness of Christ. That, if you are in Christ, that is your identity. The old has passed away, the new has come. Exchange your sin and your other thoughts and those voices in your head, exchange them for the righteousness of Christ and walk in that, in faith, and know that he is patient with you. As we stumble through that and learn to walk in that identity, he is with you. He is rejoicing with you at every step. And be quick to listen. What will that look like this week? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That is who you were created to be. Receive the implanted word with meekness and humility. And take what you hear and be doers in faith, knowing that he's already empowered you to fulfill what he's given you to accomplish. And let the action of your life be a demonstration of kingdom-mindedness of seeking first the kingdom, of putting all of your eggs in that basket, of storing up treasures in heaven, for doing everything for the glory of God and to be seen and receive the pleasure and the blessing of our Lord, not of man. So walk in that this week and do it in joy and in freedom that Christ has already secured it for you. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you that we get to be a part of what you're doing. Lord, thank you that you love us in such a powerful way. Thank you, God, that you have already done what you have required. You give us everything that you require of us. You require faith, but you give us faith. You require obedience. You give us power to obey. And you have given us your obedience, your righteousness, Lord Jesus. If we could just grasp that and understand that you, we've been set aside, set apart to live in response to what you've already done for us. And that that's what declares your glory to the world. Not getting caught up in worldly things, but in pursuing the kingdom and seeking the kingdom first. So Lord, this week be with us. Help us to slow down and listen to you and listen to those around us and observe and to see how you are working and to see how you intersect in people's lives, to see how you fulfill every desire and deliver us from every fear and to in gentleness and compassion to share that with people and to let our lives be a demonstration of the truth that we proclaim. And Lord, let that manifest itself in that us loving those that the world maybe sees as not valuable or as a burden 
because that's how you loved us when we were rebels, when we were enemies and children of wrath. You rescued us. You made us new and you made us yours. So Lord, we love you and we need you every day. And in Christ we have you in the power of the Spirit. Amen.